You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored by Zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. Welcome to the program, Nikki Jackson, founder and CEO of Range Me. Thank you. Range, thanks for joining us today, Nikki. Um, so Range Me is a leading product discovery and sourcing platform where retailers and suppliers discover, connect and grow their business. We'd love to um, hear a bit more about your business and yeah, please, please tell our audience about RangeMe, Nikki. Yeah, so RangeMe is a, a marketplace that connects retailers and buyers and I started the business in, gosh, I always forget the years because the years have gone by too fast. <laughs> But I always go back to, I just remember my daughter, she just turned eight this year and she was a little baby at the time. And the reason why I started the business actually seven years ago was because she at the time had really bad eczema and having a a CPG or FMCG background, I just started, I decided to develop an organic skincare range for kids with eczema. I was using at the time a, a local compounded cream by a chemist up the road from me and found that it worked amazingly on her skin. So I actually got the formulation, developed a product and was going to take it to market. And having a background in CPG or FMCG, I thought I knew what it took to take a product to market. Um, but I quickly discovered that when you are a, a little player in a, in a big, in the sea, it's very difficult to get a foot in the door at the major retailers. And I started researching the pain points with retailers and suppliers and quickly discovered that the market was at that time changing in that there was a huge surgence of new brands entering and at scale that were meeting consumers' needs and trends, but the retailers just didn't have a clear path or a clear way to manage all these new inquiries or actually discover these products efficiently. So I decided to actually can the Derma Baby project and create a platform to connect both buyers and suppliers and started the business, as I said, when my daughter was um, around nine, 12 months old, and I would put her to sleep, run, run down into the study, quickly work on the business, get her up, occupy her with some toys. And this literally was just working on the business while she was really small and just trying to, to, to get off the ground. So it had very cool, humble beginnings in our, in our little place um, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And I kind of sometimes remind our team, now we have teams of people that look after buyers and suppliers, both sides of the marketplace, that once upon a time, it was just me sitting in the study, shooting off emails to a whole group of suppliers, and then on the phone, scheduling meetings with buyers and trying to really build up both sides of the marketplace. So that is, I guess, what Range Me is and, and how it started. Such a great idea, and obviously you experienced the problem yourself. So you, you know you had that empathy, and you really understood it, and obviously came from a you know a FMCG background. So it, it just makes total sense. But how did you get that initial traction? So you know you sort of verified. Sounds like you verified the, the idea. You know, you sort of you knew intuitively, intuitively that it was going to work. Mm-hmm. But how did you how did you build your marketplace? How did you get the two sides starting to? How did you how did you get your first customers? Yeah, I think it's that everyone says, you know, the chicken and egg. It really is still, it's, it's, it's a really challenging thing about building a marketplace is creating demand on both sides. And as I said, I started doing it single-handedly. And what I discovered earlier on is a pain point from one of the retailers that I was trying to work with at the time was that they actually, they just didn't have the time I was working with them on a, it was basically a marketplace. The suppliers would invite suppliers into the marketplace, invite buyers into Discover and working with this one Australian retailer, 
I found it virtually impossible to get airtime with them, virtually impossible to even discuss my solution. And I thought to myself, they must be really that time poor and they really are very time poor professionals. And basically at that time, they said to me, you know, I, I just don't have time to answer any inquiries from any new suppliers. And I thought to myself, wow, that is where that is where RangeMe can really solve for creating a unique link on their on their website where we can manage all those new supplier inquiries into one online dashboard, one form, one dashboard exclusively so they can view it, know that it's coming for them and then have the marketplace to look at as well. And that really was the inflection point for our business because that is where we were solving a pain point for the buyer. We were helping suppliers by onboarding them. And really, when we talk about customers, they were bringing the customers to us. So that is where that was a, a little bit of the kind of the the genius behind what we ended up building was was recognizing that pain point and thinking of that idea and then obviously blowing it out and, and scaling it. Awesome. That sounds uh, amazing. And so did you go about building that and then like it did was that sort of linking with that original sort of um, that buyer at that point in time? Yeah, it was it was going about building that, but building that for all the retailers we're working with. And I think at the time the platform was very, very simple. You know, I think we put my husband and I put maybe like I can't remember how much we put a few of like a little bit of our savings towards developing an MVP. We didn't want to spend too much. We wanted to prove out the concept before we constantly um I guess invested more and more money into it but it really was a light solution our focus is really getting it out getting it tested and I think that there's a famous quote by the founder of LinkedIn which I, I love and we actually had on the wall in our Sydney office for many years it was basically if you're not embarrassed by your your first product yeah. you've launched too late um it was Reed Hoffman Reed, and yeah. I love that quote because our first product was it was it was yeah it was very basic um i remember i didn't even have a back end to go look and see who was online see what they were doing see who the users were like it was just really really basic but we launched we learned we iterated and that's kind of how we how we played and had we not launched when we launched we just never would have got the learnings and evolved as we did yeah awesome and, and so what sort of marketing strategies did you sort of deploy uh, in the beginning and then how's that sort of evolved sort of now as the business has become a lot more established in terms of attracting buyers and their sellers? Yeah, I think it, it definitely changed, it changed and we tried, of course, different things. On the retailer side, because we were selling to enterprise retailers, it really was a top-to-top top to top sell. So it really relied on me physically going in there, meeting, onboarding, getting them to to contract with us and getting that whole that whole side of the marketplace humming. So that really is like the high touch part of the the business. And I think that's just about people, even though we've never really had that many people to, to, to throw at it, it's um it was more about developing those relationships and getting those retailers on board. On the supplier side, it was more we needed to adopt more of a scaled approach because we had, you know, a lot more suppliers coming in. And our our model did change. So initially our model in Australia was actually pay to play. So any supplier that came into our marketplace had to pay a subscription fee. So that was quite more resource intensive in terms of we had literally an office full of, it was like people from a lot of English people that were traveling used to come into our office and be telesales and selling to suppliers. And so that was quite high touch. But as we moved to a freemium model, we were onboarding suppliers then at scale. And so we relied on automation tools to, to do that. So we, invested in of course salesforce and a whole lot of plugins to actually manage that whole journey we use autopilot which is 
uh, kind of like the old Marketo, but a really great platform to help with customer journeys, auto email prompts depending on their life stage or what they've done in the plat what they've done in the platform. So we we actually we love and have built our, our business around not our business around it, but it's really helped us scale. So as we've evolved and, and grown, we've had to use these various systems and new processes to help us do that. And I would say that the one side of the marketplace, the supplier side is more of a scaled approach. And on this on the retailer side, it's more of a, a one-to-one account management. Yes, we have scaled things that we do in terms of marketing to them, engaging them, getting them into the platform, but it is more of a relationship-driven approach. As we as we switch on paid features, we now have a sales team that of course speak to suppliers, customer support team. That again has evolved and changed, but it is different for both sides of the marketplace. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so in those very early days when you're sort of trying to get those retailers on board, was that a matter of, you know, searching through LinkedIn and finding the right people and contacting them and cold calling? How did you sort of go in It was. In it was a lot of LinkedIn stalking, a lot of messaging. I feel like it was at a time when, I, I don't know, I don't know if, if you guys feel the same, but, you know, now on LinkedIn, I feel like I just get bombarded yeah. and I miss out on some important contacts and emails or or emails because I am so bombarded and just don't have time to look at all my messages. I feel like it's become a lot more cluttered over the last seven, eight years. And I'm sure you guys can attest to that. So I feel like at that time it wasn't as bad. I don't know if I'm imagining it, but I maybe, or maybe it was that I was offering something of value, but I managed to cut through on LinkedIn to some very senior people and, and get key meetings with key retailers they weren't the big guns, but they were big enough to be noticed. And then once I had a handful of those, I then was able to go to the likes of Coles supermarkets and bigger retailers to get in the door. I was also very fortunate at the time to meet with the ex-CEO of Metcash, who okay. just stepped down from Metcash, Andrew Wright, and he came on board as an early stage advisor and investor to the business. And having him was really integral to the success because obviously he had a good name in the industry. There was a lot of credibility there. And he was also very helpful in helping us get into the bigger retailers at the time in the Australian market. So I think always having, I guess my advice to other founders is try and get advisors or people that can help open doors for you. No one's going to open that door. You have to do the work yeah. to get there, but they they can certainly definitely help when the timing's right. Yeah, Awesome. And so you've been extremely successful and exited it now in four, four, four short years. And sort of how did that process go going through an acquisition and sort of how did that come about? And like you're still obviously involved in the business. How's that sort of going for you? Yeah, so we, I mean, we started building the business here in this market. We spent 18 months building the business in Australia and then had, we're fortunate enough to actually it was actually when we got an article in the financial review I posted on Facebook and someone messaged me saying, oh, you have to connect with this this entrepreneur. He's in America. He'd love you or what you're doing. And I connected with him and he loved what we're doing. He's in the CPG or FMCG space and was very instrumental to also getting us connected into the the US market. That was Ido Lefla and also Lance Kalish, they FMCG or CPG entrepreneurs. And they were instrumental in helping us get, I guess, a foot in the door in the American market. And I think that, you know, that was definitely a key turning point for for our growth. And so we, we spent 18 months here building the business, getting it to the right stage where we could actually speak to American retailers. And we had done a round of investment here. We went over to the US. We spoke to American retailers. They said, well, we love what you're doing. Innovation is important to us. Pretty much when can you get here? And at that point, we came back and said to our board, you know, we need to get over there. 
and that that was an, a, a, like an interesting point of the business because we hadn't properly proven out our business in Australia. And there was a mixed school of thought saying, you know, you've got to prove it out before you go to other markets. But actually, every market is quite different. And our business did evolve and change over there. And that became the focal point because America is the biggest, is one of the largest consumer markets in the world. So we moved over there. We did a bridge round to get over there with our current investors. And then we raised a kind of pre-series A investment round with US investors. And it was at the stage when we're actually raising a a series A round that we got approached by two strategic players in the in the market that were working with we were working with the same retailer. So one was an enterprise software company and the other one was a company that acquired us. And we weren't looking for acquisition offers at the time we were raising capital. But just given, you know, we were at the point where we we're raising money and I guess it it kind of just happened. So we weren't looking for it. It just happened and it was a nice surprise at the time and it was good that we had various various there were various opportunities on on the table for us so we could have taken an investment round or we could have i guess sold and we chose to sell because obviously we wanted to make sure we got returns to investors and it was just the right the right time for us it was very quick but also the company that we did sell to really aligned with us and what we're doing um so it was a really perfect marriage they our biggest competitor physically matched buyers and suppliers for 30 years before we came into the market. So they were almost, I don't like to say this because they're hugely efficient and they've got a big tech company, tech enabled system behind them, but they were almost like the taxi industry and we were coming out and we were Uber in that little market that we were playing at. And they were acquired by a private, private equity firm about six months prior. And we were in New York meeting with the potential acquirers of Rangemen. We met with their private equity firm and they were you know, we were at the time very early on for them. It's private equity is very different, but they had just acquired our biggest competitor and wanted to, they basically wanted to expand them with technology and international expansion. And so we were the tech arm that could enable that, that growth. And it was just the right fit. So they acquired us really have been phenomenal partners. And we've pretty much everything that we set out to do that we were selling in our vision for our series A, we've been able to go out to the market and do they've been a phenomenal partner and I think it's just been a, a great acquisition on their behalf which is always nice because the business has continued to grow in value but it's also been a great partner for us it's an amazing story and congratulations I mean you you, you don't hear that often right that a startup exits within four years and then it goes on to be even more successful with its new partner right so I think that's that's a, that's a fantastic story for founders to hear thank um, you so you moved over to the US. Tell us a bit about what that was like as a founder, an Aussie founder being in Silicon Valley. Is that right? Is that where you were living? Yes. In? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we moved the, uh, my husband at the, at the time of being able to go to the US, he basically was in another business, tech, tech enabled business at the time. And he sold out of that joint range me and helped with the international expansion. And so we were both kind of in it together. So it was almost like it had to be successful <laughs> because of there was so much riding on it. But not only that, we were taking two, two, two kids, two and five over to the other side of the world, leaving family, grandparents. And yes, there was a lot of guilt and a lot of stuff thrown at us, but we just knew that we pretty much had nothing to lose. We had everything to gain, but nothing to lose. And we just decided it was now or never, let's make it happen. And it, it was hugely exhausting, but it was hugely exciting as well. So we moved over to 
Silicon Valley. We lived in San Francisco. Our kids went to school in the city. The reason everyone asks us, why did you choose Silicon Valley? And it really was because firstly, Ido Leffler, who was our US investor and chairman at the time, was based out in San Francisco. So we wanted to be kind of where he was as well. Raising capital is a lot I guess all the venture capitalists are there. And if you really are serious about tech, you kind of have to be in San Francisco. And we also wanted it to acquire, to hire really good talent. So we hired some phenomenal talent there that I don't think we would have been able to have hired anywhere else. And they really were instrumental to our growth. So, it, and, and being an Aussie founder, I think what I love about Americans is that they're so open to new, new ideas and new concepts. And They just love that Rangey was different and new and they always are leaning in, wanting to collaborate, wanting to partner. There's there's no tall puppy syndrome there. They're just movers, shakers, wheelers, dealers. And I just absolutely love that. And I think as being an Aussie, being a female, it, it kind of just was a, you know, you kind of stood out a little bit more. They love the Aussie accent. They're just open to new ideas. And I think being female also was another point of difference. So it was actually like a, a really, really great experience. And everyone was, yeah, it was just great to work with everyone. And even retailers at very senior levels, you know, cutting through, having meetings, they, there was never any, you know, any prejudice or anything. It was more so they just loved the, the Aussiness of it. This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace, to find a convenient parking space near your home or office. Yeah, cool. That's super, super exciting. And I'd love to have a chat with you offline because we're at space and we're, we're just recently in the US and we've had a chat about that before but uh, yeah love love, love to pick your brain further one of the things that our listeners often sort of say say to us is that the most valuable insights they get are from sort of war stories or the things that didn't quite go right or to plan so we'd love for you to sort of share with us some of those tricky times you know I'm sure there were some over the years at Range Me and and sort of how you overcame those yeah I'll kind of maybe think about you know, when we moved over to the US, we had a pay to play model in Australia and we were launching with Target, which is, you know, a huge retailer. And we decided to adopt the same model. And literally we put our link on their website, we switched it on and we were waiting for the pay gates and the floodgates to open. And what we quickly discovered is every supply was basically dropping off at the payment point because who is range me? They don't know about range me. And they, it basically wasn't working. Our growth was really, really small and it wasn't big enough and i think going into a new market you have to think about what are what what is important what are investors looking for and what is the market looking for and in australia it was okay to grow organically it was okay to grow slowly because the market isn't as big but in in the us if you want to make a big splash you have to pretty much own it and you have to dominate and so we actually decided at that point to go free have no payment gateways the whole platform free we discovered you know we realized we had a runway of nine or 12 months to make it work on a skeleton team and so we just kind of just we just went free and I think that definitely didn't go according to plan I almost you know we you know there were quite a few hard conversations we weren't sure if we're making the right decision it absolutely was the right decision because we went from onboarding 50 suppliers a week to like a thousand suppliers a week at that time now it's much bigger but it was just phenomenal in terms of the growth and we never would have got to where we got to had we not made that decision to take away the payment gateways. And it was a very difficult decision because you're so used to the best thing about these some online businesses, you wake up the next morning, you see like a flood of these invoices that have come through overnight. You're like, oh, it's amazing. While I sleep, the business is making money. And we switched that off and we were so used to that. And 
it was it was it was tough, but it was the right thing to do. And I think you know those things those things happen. You know, it's happened have happened along the way many times. There's there's hundreds of examples of that, and I think you just have to you know iterate and change as you go. And nothing is ever going to be perfect or good a plan, but you just have to you kind of just have to roll with it and make the best decision you can at the time. And I think a lot you can have as many advisors or as many board members as you as you want but at the end of the day you know your business better than anyone else so what what, what was the board like at that time and making that decision uh, they they kind of at the time it was actually our chairman it all that was in agreement with us about the need for hyper growth and scaling because he was based in the u.s so he knew more he knew the market so yeah. they, luckily he was our chairman and so we were able to lead the board through that and our u.s investors were very much um, on board with that so they, they were pretty good in taking guidance from us. But at the same way, we were free. And then, you know, we got to the point when we were raising capital and we were still free, but we had huge growth, huge, huge growth. We had revenue from Australia that we could prove out. We had no US revenue proven. And our conversations with, with investors were taking longer. We had these acquisition offers on the table. And at that time, we had formulated what our premium version of Range Me was going to look like, but we hadn't switched it on yet. And we were like, we're not going to wait till someone actually makes a decision for us. Are we going to get acquired? Are we going to seek investment? We're just going to switch on revenue because that's what we need to do. And that was a decision our board didn't make. We actually made it down me as founders. We went to our team the next morning. We're like, we need to switch on revenue ASAP because we need time. We don't want to go down an investment room or acquisition route if we don't want it. We've, we've got the marketplace. We had, I think at the time, 60, 70,000 supplies. We had enough supplies to actually turn on paid features. And we did that. And I think that's another kind of pivotal moment where you, you kind of things happen and you, you make decisions and you go with it. And I think you've got to trust your gut. Yeah, and, cool. and, and how quickly did you start seeing revenue sort of start coming in once you turn that, turn that back on? Oh, instantly. Yeah, right. Yeah. It must have been pretty exciting seeing that and knowing you'd sort of made the, the right decision. Yeah. It bought us time, which was great. Yeah. But yeah, it, I mean, we spent time researching with our, our, part, our retail partners to understand what they needed. And then we kind of converted that into a paid feature. So it, it was, it, we knew it had merit, it had legs, it would work. But like literally we turned on landing pages overnight and requests for more information pages. We had guys on the phone talking, like literally our heads of marketing, senior people in the company were just selling the shit out of it. Because we knew we had to get revenue, we knew we had to sell, and through that we learned a lot. I remember our head of marketing lost his voice over that period, but he was <laughs> phenomenal. So yeah, awesome. And so earlier you mentioned, you know, talent and getting talent um, was really important f- uh, for your business, and particularly as you moved into the Silicon Valley area. So what, what sort of talent was sort of super important that you got, and sort of what sort of roles? Yeah, I mean, thinking back to it, I think we got there, and we didn't really. We didn't really know what we needed. We got on the ground and knew we needed someone to look after the retailer side, the account management, account management side and the retail side. And then my co-founder, my husband, found a really good, through a referral network, a really great recruiter. And he was a one-man band, him and his wife team. They'd been in Silicon Valley. They'd seen it all. They recruited for all the big companies. And he kind of came and sat down with us and we were talking about what we needed. And we... we we hadn't even heard about this term customer success. <laughs> and this is like, so, like, you know, like six, seven years ago, it just wasn't a thing in Australia. You know, startups wasn't a thing in Australia. Yeah. Actually, at the time when yeah. I launched Range Me, whenever I told people I've got a startup, they were like, oh, shame. Like, 
poor you. you know? <laughs> now, now having a startup is cool, but at the time yeah. I felt like the poor cousin. And now it's cool. So we got there. There was a thing called customer support, customer success. We're like, shit, we probably need that because we, we're now free. We're onboarding all these suppliers at scale. And so we decided to hire a head of customer support. And then we also just realized we probably needed someone to market our platform and market what we're doing, but do it in a digital way. And we had this guy come into our office and he was a whiz bang and he gave us this presentation and Daryl, my husband and I, co-founder looked at each other we're like we don't understand a word this guy said but it all sounds freaking amazing <laughs> it was all like you know the terminology and like he'd come from a previous tech company he lived in breeze silicon valley his whole life and he was actually absolutely phenomenal to our growth and implementing all of these you know scaling solutions to help us scale dramatically and and marketing implementation so he's still our vp of vp of marketing to this day and yeah, I think it's it's key hires like that that really make a business. Yeah, um, yeah. Particularly when you're in a new landscape, and you know they you, you're trying to still navigate. I remember on, on our wall in our in our office in San Francisco, we had like a conversion chart. It was like the Aussie slang versus the US slang. <laughs> you know, what does a shout mean? What does I shout? I'll shout you mean? What do all these things mean? But it, it definitely is very different. And I think having those key hires very early on was really important. Yeah, it makes sense. And so your, your background has come from uh, working in large sort of corporates, uh, working at companies like Pepsi and Kellogg's. What, what's it been like sort of transitioning from working in those large sort of corporates and going in and building your own startup? And how, how hard has that transition been? I always had like an entrepreneurial flair um, and a spirit. I remember when I was working at Jim Beam when I was studying university and we had, we did big campaigns for new product launches and we, we, we put posters all around vehicles and had them driving around the streets. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, wow, I want to start a company where we like wrap courier vehicles that are running around the streets anyway. And I actually started that at the age of like 19 and Jim Beam was my first client. Like I think I've always had the, and I, I didn't end up continuing that, but I, I've always had the hunger for doing my own thing, but I just never knew what it was that I wanted to do. And I had thought of so many ideas along the way that I never actually ended up launching. When I was working at Kellogg's, I was at the time launching a, a vitamin range for women. Like I've always thought of ideas, written business plans. And sometimes like you convince yourself that they're not going to work because there is that fear and also there's that investment and all that kind of thing. And I think if you've got it, some people are just made for corporate and I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think if you are if you do have that entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurial flair, if you are like, if you are passionate about something, if you do have a great idea, there's nothing wrong with in the beginning keeping your corporate job, doing that on the side, working on it at night, proving out the concept, understanding what the costs are going to be, speaking to people, getting advice, and then when you're ready, you can always quit that corporate job and move into that startup. So I think it, it is a leap. I think it's very different. I don't think I would necessarily have hired anyone in the early stages of arrangement that came from you know, PwC or EY or any yeah, like yeah, big corporate yeah. because I think it's a very different skill set. But I think if you're a person and you've gone into the corporate workforce exactly like I did because I actually wanted to get the training and have something to fall back on and you have that entrepreneurial flair, I think definitely work on things on the side that you're passionate about. Sometimes there's also a great release from the boring mundaneness of corporate life. <laughs> <laughs> and then if something actually cu- comes off and 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 you found a co-founder or there's legs on it, then you can leave your corporate job. But I think only leave once you really are committed to that and you know that it's 
got some legs. So on that note, many of the people listening to this podcast do work in corporate environments. And I guess they're looking to perhaps get out of that environment, start their own business, start up, mm -hmm. uh, whatever you want to call it. Perhaps they work in innovation roles. So what are some of the myths that you would debunk? Like, you know, it's, it's not as rosy as it sounds, you know, oh. going to these, you know, these hyped up startup events and yeah, anyone can do it, right? Like, you know, you exit in four years, but you're an outlier, right? So yeah, yeah what, what myths do you want to debunk? Well, I just that? want to debunk the myth that, that, yeah, exactly, that it's not all rosy, it's not all easy. It's basically in the early stages, you're not getting paid market salaries, you're not getting paid. If anything, maybe you're just putting money into the business. You're working day, night, weekends. The highs are the greatest highs you've ever experienced, but the lows are the biggest lows you've ever experienced too. And like when things just get swept up from under your feet and it's it's a hard slog. And I always say you almost have to be mentally stable, really mentally stable to do a startup <laughs> because it is literally like a roller coaster. And I would say it's not for everyone because it really isn't. There's huge risk, but of, of course there's huge return. And it is a bit, it, it's addictive. It's like a drug. At the moment, I still enrage me. I still love it, but I, I still get these like, when I win an account or something amazing happens, I still get this like, yes moment. But um, I'm also advising a few startups on the side as well. And I, I love that because I love seeing their journey. I can almost tell them it's going to be okay. Like you're going to ride this through and this is what you need to do. And But it is, it is, it is mentally draining. It is physically draining. It is difficult. Like there is only, like I remember at the time when Range Me was acquired, I literally had, a lot of staff in San Francisco who were actually quite disappointed because they thought that Range Me would be the next Facebook. And let's be honest, the next Facebook, the unicorns in this in this industry is the 1%, the 0.001%. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. happen. It's not easy to happen. More, more often than not, startups go under um, because they run out of finance or you know, something happens and that is more the react that is more the the norm than anything else. And so the the rosiness of it becoming you you're gonna be the next Nick Muller from Afterpay or, you know, like it it's not easy to be that. And I think it's just a bit of a reality check. It's not to deter people from doing it, but I'm always erring more on the side of caution because I know how hard it is. And I get people contacting me all the time. My investors in Australia are constantly flicking people to me to say like I met this person, they've got a great idea. I thought you could help them, connect to them. I'm always happy to have conversations. But more often than not, I always try and err people on the side of caution because a lot of the time something's been done like that before or it isn't a big enough idea to make it work or there's too much involved, too much investment for them. Or, you know, like it's, I'm always more erring on the other side, having lived it and being through it and understanding how rare it is to come out of it the other side <laughs> don't want to sound negative because I love my journey and I'm so grateful for it but there's 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 both sides to it I think people need to go in there wise open, wide with eyes wide open yeah absolutely and I think it's having sort of that real re resilience to be able to cope with the the ups and downs of uh, building that completely. startup completely yeah and I think um in San Francisco one of our investors was a successful founder twice before. I mean, he sold one of his business to Sony for like 75 million, another one for 150 million. Like he just had done well like a few times and he he really got the psyche of what it's like. And whenever I had check-ins with him once a week, it was never like, how's the business going? What are your metrics? He's like, how are you? How does the team, you know, like, are, you know, are you, are you exercising? Are you having a break for yourself? Like he really was kind and considerate in that way and I think that's such an important part of it because it's really taxing 
Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's, it's very special having people like that that you can, um, yeah, work, work alongside. Um, so, you know, just moving um, into a different gear for a moment. And thanks so much for your time, Nikki. This will be the, the last question for, for today's podcast because we, we, we super busy. <laughs> <laughs> and we love your passion. And thanks for sharing so openly. I think this has um, been, you know, one of our best podcasts um, in terms of, you know, it's been so real and you've really shared an amazing journey here, the highs and the lows, as, as, you, as you shared. So now that, you know, you're part of a much bigger group, you know, in, in the US, um, you're still the CEO, as I understand it, you're still involved in the business. How have things changed for you? You know, you still sound as passionate as ever. You know, are you going to be doing this forever or what, what, what are your plans? Um, <laughs> if you can share. Yeah, I know, it's hard, to, it's hard to lose the passion. I still, I mean, Range Me still feels like my baby and it is my baby. It's, it, it, it is different now that we have, we're owned by, a private equity company and our we have new owners so we have a different i'm not i'm kind of it's a different board it's a different makeup um and different lines of reporting but and we have a much bigger team now in san francisco it's a lot it, it, it is very different in that we're more involved strategically and directionally there there are certain parts of the business <clears throat> that i'm more involved in day to day which is the retail side of the business which i've always been involved in but as the business has grown and evolved i guess you become less involved in the day-to-day and more involved in the strategic, I guess, nature of the business, such as, you know, setting out roadmap strategy, you know, yearly annual plans, things like that. So I think that that's how it has changed. But I, I, but I also still feel more connected now than ever before because everyone is working remotely. It's not just Nikki's now in a different country to the majority of the team. We do have a team in Australia as well, but everyone is working remotely. So we really rely on Zoom catch-ups, Slack, um, and we we are constantly connected. So day-to-day, obviously, I'm still very much involved in the business and the business is owned by private equity. So, so eventually they will sell the business. And at that point, I'm not sure whether I would stay on or leave depending on who the new owners are and what happens. Um, and I think that's, I don't know when that's going to happen, but it will happen in the near future, I'm sure. So I, I guess I'll wait and see um, what happens then, but very much still involved in the business. And there are expansion plans for Range Me into other markets that I'm very much involved in. So I'm excited by that. And, you know, we talk about the highs of getting that response and things like that. I'm still experiencing that through the potential expansion to other markets. So I still have that excitement, that drive. And we are we are constantly launching new features. So... We just launched a new feature within Range Me, which is another tier and another premium tier within our platform for suppliers. And just seeing that go live and seeing the uptake still keeps me excited and and up at night. And um, we have some other exciting stuff coming down the channel for Range Me. So it's still it's still very exciting. Our partner in ECRM has actually has actually virtually transformed their entire business through COVID. So they were physical hosting physical meetings between buyers and suppliers in 60 sta- in 60 sessions across the whole of America. And they basically digitized their entire business. So now we're working more collaboratively with them than ever before. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. And that's just kind of where my role is at the moment. I'm still very actively involved in all that and still also love to just, I, I, I love the, the, how the Australian landscape has evolved in terms of the startup scene. So I'm still very much involved in that, um, advising a few founders and um, in, involved in, in in the scene here as well. So, yeah, really a, a good balance. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Nikki. I really appreciate your time and uh, congratulations on your success. Uh, it's been uh, really no, 
awesome hearing all your, your stories and sharing your insights with, with our audience. So thanks so much. Perfect. Thanks, Steve, for hosting. And thanks, Michael, for hosting too. It's been great. Thanks, Nikki. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.